Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Angel Preto. He helps French speakers learn French, and I did my best in pronouncing his name in the, the French vernacular. Um, he lives in Vienna, Austria, and has learned five languages to fluency and has much more to talk about his life. So I'm excited for Angel to be here today. So thank you so much. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yes, thank you, Sarah, for having me. Um, yeah, as you said, my name is Angel Preto, and the first name is spelled like, like angel, so it's fine to call me that. I'm a French learning coach for English speakers. Um, I have been a French teacher for over 18 years now, and the last six years, almost seven years, I've created an online business to just do this work online and to help um mostly or almost exclusively English speakers, a lot of people from the US, uh, Canada, UK, and generally people who speak English who need to learn French for their work or for their family life. So that's what I do. And I have a lot more background, but I'm sure you have many questions. Yeah. So can you share a little bit kind of your languages, how you first really got into the language of French and then teaching it? Well, French is my native language, so I got into it by uh, being born. <laughs> and um, actually, I didn't know for a long time if I was going to become a French teacher for French natives or if I was going to go uh, towards um, foreigners. And then I chose that because also I really enjoyed the English language. And um, yeah, it just somehow gradually became that I chose those two languages to specialize in. And now I'm just really good, if I may say so myself, at French and English and at helping people uh, add the French language to their lives. And then there are the other languages that I have learned, which I am not as good at them as English. But um, I learned Spanish uh, also at school. In, in France, you have to have two foreign languages. So mine were English and Spanish. And uh, also now I have a Mexican girlfriend, so that gives me more opportunities to practice Spanish. I also learned Portuguese uh, around when I was in high school, just for fun, I learned by myself. And then I moved to German-speaking countries. I lived in Austria, then I moved to Germany with my ex-wife, then I moved back to Austria. And the last 10 years, I have been living in German-speaking contexts. So my German isn't perfect, but I speak well enough to live in those countries. And finally, my last language is Esperanto. Um, you might have heard of it. It's a constructed language, which was built just for the purpose of international communication. And it works really well, except for the fact that only perhaps a few million people in the world know it. So when you meet another one, it's, it's, it's enjoyable to like communicate with them, and it's very fast to learn. So I, I think there's no reason why not to learn it. I mean, it took me about a month to learn it, so you know. Compared to the other languages, it was a lot easier. Yeah. And I guess, you know, like I misspoke, of course, in my questions since French is your native language, but of course, we're talking in English. So yes. on a day to day, like how much do you spend in your different languages? Most of it is in English, uh, especially right now I'm traveling to the US. So almost all of it is in English, except uh, the little French that I speak with my clients and when I, you know, watch videos in French. Um, but yeah, in all cases, even when I'm home, most of it is in English. I would say perhaps 75%. And then I have 20% in French and maybe 
3% in German, 2% in Spanish, and 1% for uh, miscellaneous <laughs> languages. I think that's that adds up to 100. Yeah. So you mentioned how, um, you know, you had to use learn two foreign languages in school. Yes. And then, you know, you picked up some other. So what for you was it like learning languages and was it easy or like because now you're obviously also like teaching learning language yes i think i don't know if i believe that languages are easier for some people than for others but definitely some people have more interest and i think that having a strong interest in something really helps you learn it so for me i really didn't have any problems learning english at first and in fact, it's when I was a tutor for the pupils who struggled with English that I realized how hard some things in English can be. <laughs> and uh, it has served me well because now um, when my clients complain about French, I can tell them, well, I put, look at this in English. This is not easy. <laughs> and there are, there are many things in English that probably that you're not thinking about, which is just um, weird. And of course, I don't have an example right now because <laughs> on the grill, but I'll, I'll find something um, like the, I don't know, like, for example, the, you have the singular they, but they is normally a pronoun, like a plural pronoun. Uh, and you have the same they for plural he and plural she, which we don't in French. Um, the conjugation in English is kind of weird. Like the past, like I have been is different than I was, mm -hmm. you know these kind of things. Yeah. So do you find then that people who are native English speakers, like, are they able to pick up French easily? It really depends on how it's taught, uh, which is why I've built a coaching practice to teach it in the way that's the easiest. Mm -hmm. um, if you narrow down what they need to learn to only what's important, yes, it's relatively easy and fast. But if you don't do the work if no one does the work ahead of time to just select what they need to learn and, and just kind of pay, paste, uh, prepare their, their way of it, show the path to them, then it can be extremely complicated. And then you fall into the uh, you know, cliche that English speakers don't speak any other language, but it's just because no one makes it easy for them. Mm -hmm. So is that then how you kind of built your practice that you focus on? What does the learner need to learn? Yes, absolutely. The first thing that I do with every client is to build a roadmap for them with their personal goals. And then everything I do is based on showing them the patterns and how they can learn less and have more impact. Like even on my YouTube channel, I have a ton of videos where I explain how you can learn a little bit and then have like a massive uh, increase in the things that you can speak, which is pretty much the opposite of what everything everybody else does. I said everything because it's often an app where a lot of people or apps approaches just teach a lot of vocabulary, but not really teach people how to speak. And I'm just trying to do the exact opposite of that so that people can speak and feel more confident faster because otherwise it can last very, very long. Mm -hmm. So do you then focus mostly on like spoken language over written or reading? Like how do you physically do your teaching is it video based like or is it it is um online mm -hmm. basically like we are doing right now so i use zoom so my my client just only needs to click a link to join the class i also have a group program where i have group classes and pre-recorded uh, workshops um, i also use google docs so you can open a google document next to your zoom um, window and 
when I type in the Google document, my client will see what I type at the same time. So during the session, they have to just focus on, on speaking and on asking the questions and just on their learning. And I take all the notes for them on the Google document. And then whether or not I teach more spoken language or reading or writing, that depends completely on what they need for their own life. For example, uh, if I'm coaching a doctor whose goal is to go to French-speaking Africa with a charity and the reason why they're learning French is mostly to speak to patients, then there isn't really a point in teaching them to read a cooking recipe, right? <laughs> but conversely, uh, I have currently a client who is a future pastry chef and she will go to study in France to become a pastry chef. Then it makes complete sense to, her, to teach her the cooking recipe and not so much how to have a medical consulta consultation with a patient in French. Could make sense to have a medical consultation as the patient since it's going to be in France, but it really depends on what their life is going to be like or what their life is like right now. Yeah, that, that seems like a much more like sensible way to do it, to be tailoring it to mm -hmm. the person. Now, do you work mostly with... It's so much faster. <laughs> yes. Do you work mostly with adults? I work exclusively with adults. Everyone I've worked with in the last seven years was over 18. And do you work with people at all who have like previously learned uh, French in school? That happens, yes. It's not a criterion for me whether they have learned French or not. Like I meet them where they're at. So I have complete beginners and I have people who are also pretty advanced already. And do you ever find that like someone who's already learned French, like do they struggle more or are they kind of like they're miles ahead so they're able to pick up even quicker on what you're teaching i would typically if you have studied before you have a great head start there are people who have studied four years of french in the past you know 20 years ago they had four years of french but they've quote unquote forgotten everything um, whenever that happens i tell them like don't worry it's not forgotten it's just that your brain was like okay i don't need this right now just put it in the attic like in the back it's a bit dusty but don't worry, we're going to dust it off and you'll see it, uh, it's going to be faster. And one thing that I love, which <laughs> happens kind of randomly from time to time, is if I'm coaching someone who has learned French decades ago and does not remember or thinks they don't remember, sometimes they will blurt something out that I have not told them. And they'll be like, but where did that come from? Well, I told you, you have it. <laughs> it is there. So yeah, if nothing is ever really lost, it's just that you need to reactivate it and that can take a bit of skill. Right. So then how did you go about learning um, the languages that you learned after school and like moving to a German speaking country, like without any German background? Uh, moving to a German speaking country, I mostly just did it. <laughs> um, yeah, I've learned every language pretty differently. There isn't like a path they follow. It's just that things, it, things happen organically. I never set out to be a polyglot. It's kind of funny when I, I sometimes I meet people like, I want to be a polyglot. And I'm like, but why? <laughs> it's just that life happens and you pick up a language here and there. And if you have more of an interest in languages, you'll, you'll just do it. So for example, for Portuguese, I started literally by just learning, like write, buying a book and CDs and learning this way and speaking to people on the internet. And that was when I was 18. Mm -hmm. um, and then German, I tried to learn it through the same method, but it completely failed. I tried a lot of things to learn uh, German in the 10 years prior to moving to a German-speaking country. 
and nothing really worked. It was very difficult. And at the time, I like now I would be able to do it because I'm a coach and have distilled the process very well. But at the time, I was a kid <laughs> or like a young adult, you know, so I had none of the uh, expertise that I have now. And eventually, the reason why I moved to a German-speaking country, uh, to uh, Austria originally, is because I was finishing my master's degree to become a French teacher for foreigners. And when you've done that, it's very difficult to get a job in France if you don't have prior experience abroad. So I had to move abroad when I was 25. Like I didn't really get a choice. So I looked for every job ad to teach French abroad um, in Europe because I didn't want to get too far. So I sent 60 applications from Portugal all the way to Russia. And then eventually I got the job in Austria. So I was like, okay, let's move there. And uh, I moved there with my partner of the time who was actually fluent in German. And got super frustrated because over there where I moved, they they speak a completely different German from the one you learn in, in school and in university. So it's like, yeah, it was an adventure. And so when you took that job, were you teaching French to German speakers or were you teaching? Yes. Okay. Yes, I was a, I was a French assistant. So I had two high schools every year where I went and my job was to... Uh, be the uh, referent native speaker for the uh, for the class. So I would occasionally like, teach them cultural things, like how the life is in France, how it is different. And just generally, the role is to be a link so they understand that the language that they, that they learn has some relevance, like that real-life people speak it. And I've never seen eyes larger than the first day that I was there. It's like, really? A real French person? Like, how? Like, it's like I was coming from planet Mars and it was just a thousand kilometers, but you know, <laughs> they just they were in the village. They had just never been outside of their village. It, it was cute. Mm-hmm. So can you share a little bit about what it's been like culturally and the different places you've lived? Uh, wow. That is a really, really broad questions. Um, I'll say I've only lived in three countries. I've lived in France um, until I was 25. Then I moved to Austria. Then I got married and moved to Germany, and then I moved back to Austria. Um, it's really hard to answer this question without giving some really big cliches. Like in France, for example, I know you, you were mentioning off camera that you basically only know how to say hello. It's the most important word of the French language, bonjour. And the reason why is if you don't start your conversation with bonjour, people are not even going to consider you. It's just rude to not say bonjour to people in France. And in Germany and Austria, they don't have this rule. So I'm utterly convinced that everyone is super rude. <laughs> and it's just, it's, it's dumb, but it's the kind of things that like make you feel like, oh, I'm, a, I'm an alien here. Like people are not like me, you know? And so is there anywhere else that you have considered living or other languages you've considered learning? Oh, lots. Um, I mean, languages I've considered learning. How about every language? One day I made the list of all the languages that I failed at because I always like to brag how I, you know, I learned to speak six languages to fluency if you count my native French. And uh, one day I just wrote the list of like all the languages I started studying and gave up. There were 22. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) lots, yes. Um, But um, then I became wiser while becoming older. I'm like, yeah, it it only makes sense to learn a language if you're going to use it in your real life. Mm. And so, for example, my girlfriend is Mexican. I already speak Spanish because of learning it prior. And 
I'm definitely considering living in Mexico at some point because it would make sense. It's just how life unfolds. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know where I will move next. I'm not planning to move in the coming years, but who knows? Right. And that makes sense. Like you're being very logical about yeah. your decisions. And like you've obviously also put that into the business you've created online. Absolutely. So why did you move your business to more of an online model? Um, that's a bit of a, um, it's also organic things that happened. Um, I used to teach exclusively in person until 2014. But then at some point in 2014, I just did not find enough teaching opportunities to make a full-time job. And I got fed up. So I decided to go into a different branch and just, you know, find a job doing something else because there was like I couldn't get myself hired as a full-time teacher in a high school in Austria just because you know being a foreigner it was complicated like that in theory like Europe has this great idea that like yeah you can move anywhere and do anything and it's in practice it's not like that at all it's extremely there's a lot of gatekeeping so I couldn't do that so I looked for a job in something else and I found a job in a tech company in the uh, support department because I needed to speak to a lot of customers in different languages because it was a tech company that was uh, operating globally, even though it was relatively small. So I did that for a year. And then um, that's when I realized that I'm a trans person and that went really, really wrong. And I lost my job. And at that point, uh, my girlfriend of the time, who is now my ex-wife, told me, oh, it, it's because Vienna is so conservative. That would never happen in Berlin. She's from Berlin. Uh, move to Berlin with me, you'll be fine, you'll find a great job, plus that job was really like not good for you. Um, <laughs> your competences were like wasted, which is true, it was a relatively low level job, I, I could do better. Um, and then I did find a job in Berlin, uh, where I became the head of the support department in a company that was a bit smaller than the previous one. And I did a lot of organizing, like even creating actually the support department from scratch. And if I would ever find another job, that's what I would try to do again, because it was, it was fun. Um, but navigating that environment was not easier than in Vienna. In fact, it was harder and it still got me fired. So, <laughs> so after it happened twice in six months, uh, that's actually when I decided to transition to mail because I was like, if I'm going to have the downsides of being a trans person and none of the upsides of being trans masculine, passing as male and living as male and so on, it, it's not worth it. Like I might as well just go all the way and get the downsides and the upsides. Uh, but problem, it takes some time to be processed, to be done. And especially the legal aspect of it takes some time because you have to like prove everything and it's just long. And during that time, I also still had to support myself and try to do something. And it was not even really um, safe to be outside. So I was like, if I'm going to be inside, what can I do while well, I can work online? And that was just when people were starting to speak about online businesses. Um, I had found italki, which is a language learning platform where you can give classes. And at the time, it was actually even possible to make a full-time income from there. It quickly became impossible because, you know, like every platform, you quickly have more offer than demand. Um, but at the time, it worked really, really well. So that's how I started. And I realized that it wasn't a long-term thing. So I learned how to build a business from scratch with my own website, my own email list, uh, my own social media channel, you know, recording videos, etc., and creating an offer. So, yeah. 
That's a nutshell of it. It's it's kind of like a not happy reason to have moved to online, you know, getting fired twice. But in the long run, it's worked. Yes. And then COVID broke out and I had a four years head start in working from home all the time. And for me, it was like no different. I'm like, I don't see what people are complaining about. This is just business as usual. Right. Now, would you be willing to share a little bit about what it was like transitioning to a male? Um, Because you shared just kind of briefly of kind of taking that plunge. Um, Can you specify? Because it's... (laughs) I'm going to rumble for an hour. (laughs) Yeah, sure. I mean, um, because you talked about, you mentioned how, like, you know, it wasn't necessarily, like, safe to go outside. Um, So I'm I'm curious to know kind of what, or maybe, like, the timeline of, you know, maybe, like, starting hormones and then kind of getting to the point of I'm passing, I'm male, and it's now, like, safe for me to be who I am. Um, I don't think it's ever really safe for a trans person to be who they are. It's just that there are situations that are safer than others. Mm-hmm. I was very lucky when I started because my ex-wife was also trans herself. She knew the only one doctor who was going to give me testosterone based on informed consent in Berlin. And normally the, uh, the procedures in Europe is that you have to go to therapy for a year and a half before they even allow you to have hormones. And I, if I had been forced to do that, I probably would have died. Like, to be honest, like a year and a half of gatekeeping, it's just, it's, it's insane. Like I was, I had reached a point where it was really a breaking point for me. I just couldn't continue living as female based on how much uh, adversity I'd been faced uh, with. So I went to that one doctor and it took me just a week because I had to um, get my blood drawn um, to make sure I didn't have a condition that would stop me from getting hormones. And then I didn't. So then I uh, started getting uh, testosterone injections. And then there are several options. You can have slow tea, as they call it, which you can take a small dose to like change very slowly. Or you can take the full dose, which is basically the equivalent of what a man has, and just change relatively fast. And because I was wanting to just put an end to <laughs> my situation, I was like, yeah, like shoot me with the highest dose that you have. So it was relatively fast. Uh, it took, I mean, if you have the full dose, it takes between four to six months to really pass. And uh, for me, because I have long hair, it was a bit longer, um, but it happened relatively fast. And what's interesting is that uh, at that time, my, that's when my ex-wife had her surgery. So she went to Thailand to have her surgery and I went with her and we were there for a month. And when I was on the plane going there, I was not passing the, the men around, was still treating me as female. And you, you can know that because they really just disregard you. I mean... I can know that as a trans person, like as a, if you're being perceived as female, men just don't regard you, like don't treat you as well as if you're perceived as male. Like, for example, they will not make sure that you have enough space. And on the flight back, so one month later, uh, I could see that the, the men who were on those planes were looking at me differently and were just like, you know, making sure to not touch me when they were like, which was nice because they let me ha- have my space. And... I don't really know how it happened. Also, because of having been to Thailand, where the population is majority Asian, and then getting on that plane where the population was in large part white, um, where people are more likely to, because I'm a white person myself, people are more likely to gender me like a white person does. 
um, it was uh, it was just an uncanny experience. I don't know if that makes sense to you what I'm saying. <laughs> it was uncanny, but yeah, that's how I I knew that I started passing. So it was five months. So what you shared, I think it does make a lot of sense. You know, you had two, what sh could have been very similar experiences, but were also completely different because at that point you were passing and people were treating you fully as a male. Yes. So you'd mentioned a little bit about kind of legality of things. So are you... First, are you like legally only a citizen in France or have you? Yes. Okay. I am. Uh, I have only French citizenship, sadly. I hope to have more than one eventually, but so far I only have one. Okay. And so then did you have to do everything through France to legally change your name? Yes, absolutely. The only, you have to change your name uh, and your gender everywhere you have a legal citizen. So for me, that was only France. Uh, and I could not do it remotely. I had to go there to do it. I literally had to go to court to demonstrate that I am a male, which is hilarious when you think about it. Was that like a very difficult procedure or was it kind of like you were able to go to court and you were done? It was mostly long and a bit nerve wracking because I was the first person ever in that court to get this process. And in theory, you don't need a lawyer, but I, I could see that they would never give me an appointment if I didn't get a lawyer, just probably because they didn't know how to do it, because it was the first time. And I actually had a plan to first become German through my marriage and then change my, my um, gender, because at the time I decided to transition, there was no law in France that allowed me to change my gender. And it was very hit or miss. I mean, I know that some people had succeeded, but it was each court that would decide. And the criteria they used were, they didn't have any law. So it, I knew it would be very difficult for me to get it done. Even people who have had complete surgery and everything and who would be passing for 20 years would still get it refused. Um, and then, and actually uh, the uh, European court had been telling France off for 10 years, being like, this is bad, this is against human rights, you should just allow people to change their gender if they live as a different gender than what's on the paper. And France for 10 years have been like, nope, la 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 la, not gonna do it. <laughs> so imagine in the US if the Supreme Court would say something and then the states would still not listen, you know, that kind of level. And um, so I was like, okay, it's probably not never gonna happen, but in Germany, there was a law that would have allowed me, it's just that I wasn't a citizen. So that's part of the reason why I married my ex-wife. It was just better for us to be married for a number of reasons like that, with both of us being trans. And then eventually, halfway through the story, the French changed their law. So I was two years in when there finally was a law, and so I decided to start the process. And the whole process took seven months. Um, I sent my file in um, my application in July, and eventually I got my passport, I think, in, I think even in April of the coming year the year after that so long process and i had to get a lawyer and pay a lawyer for a process that theoretically is free and without lawyer but it was just not happening so yeah there's just a lot of uh, hurdles to jump through that you should never have to jump through because if you were a cis person you would get your gender on your id and you know it's not even a, the it, it's weird when you think about it it does not make any sense but that's just how it is right 
Now, have any laws since then changed to be a little bit like easier in the process that maybe if you were doing it like today, you wouldn't have felt the need for a lawyer? No, I don't think it would be different today. What we have today is that uh, there are more associations who will help you uh, because a lot more people have gone through the process so they know what works and what doesn't. At the time, it was really just, <laughs> I'm going to try my best and see if it works. So yeah, but there is no new law in France. I mean, this one is still relatively new. I'm speaking now about 2017, 2018. Mm-hmm. And so... Um... Do you think it'll ever like be an issue for trying to get like additional citizenship that you might have to like show documentation from like birth or are you able to fully use all your new legal documentation? I don't think so, but it depends on every country how they deal with things. Uh, I explored getting residency in the United Arab Emirates, which is a country that's, as you can guess, not LGBT friendly at all. Um, But I brought the case to a lawyer and he said there was no problem and that he even had had clients who already had done it and it was just fine. So, I mean, my birth certificate has a mention on it that it has been changed. So all of the documents stays the same thing, basically. And I even have a variant of it, which is short and it does not mention anything about the previous identity that they had so if someone asks for my birth certificate i can just get the short version it's relatively smooth i'm I'm more scared about just going through an airport <laughs> than getting citizenship which yeah i don't know each time i i travel i always try to carry my birth my, my birth certificate with like the whole thing in an english translation of it and just to make sure that i'm not going to get stuck by people who don't believe that I am who I say I am, which is stressful, but so far I've never had any problems. Right. It's understandable to be in that situation and and find stress in that. I think we see a lot of that yeah. online of people being mistreated or misgendered. Have you yeah. had good experiences traveling or have they been not so great? I mean, good. I've had normal experiences. I mean, going for an airport is never fun. <laughs> Even if you're a perfectly regular cis person, it's not enjoyable. Um, but yeah, I mean, getting misgendered is something that's going to happen. I, I have long hair, so I'm born to pass as female some of the time. I keep facial hair because if I shave, I'm just going to stop passing altogether, uh, which makes uh, interesting situations when I have to wear a mask. Because then if I it, I'm just like, my gender changes depending on whether I have a mask on or not. It's hilarious. But I'm not the only one. I mean, these people have this issue too. <laughs> right. Just your haircut can change how you pass according to people. So. Yes, we definitely have those ingrained stereotypes still. Yeah. But as you're sharing this and saying that, you seem to be saying it with relative like humor and comfort. So like, are you in a good place, even if those things do happen and you do get misgendered? Well, yeah, it's just that you kind of have to get over it because you have to keep living your life. You can't be constantly depressed and, and, and feel bad about yourself, especially as you know that it's never going to change. It's, it's part of life. Just do your best to not get yourself in trouble. It's not nice, but when you think about it, a lot of people have that not just trans people like sometimes even just being a woman 
makes you do things that a man would do differently just because as a woman you think it wouldn't be safe to behave like a man for example and it's just yeah it's a part of life that you have the the cards that you've been dealt and you have to play those cards the best you can i i feel very blessed that i've been able to build an online business and that i don't need to go to work with people who could potentially be toxic or transphobic or, or whatever and because like you have that online business because it's like you centric you run like you can choose to do this that or the other thing like have you had points where you haven't accepted a client or like been concerned like oh this person might not treat me with respect um no that has never happened to me i think passing as male really really helps uh, because i know a number of cis women who have stories like that where yeah they felt that the clients were just not very respectful I have had to ban clients a couple of times, but it was never related to that. It was mostly that they did not abide by the contract that they signed. And, you know, if you can't rely on what you both sign, it's a problem. So, yeah. Well, now I'm curious, what's in this contract that people sign that you have to... Oh, just like regular stuff. Like, for example, for one-to-one services, there are no refunds. Um, so if you try to ask your... Uh, payment providers to refund you the money to just like go against that contract it's not something i appreciate for example you know so that happened a couple of times uh, thank god it's very rare um but yeah like you have to show up for the sessions or if you don't show up they will still be counted as you took them because i waited for you stuff like that it's nothing really it's nothing groundbreaking to be honest it's just standard behavior when you <laughs> work with a coach Right. Yeah. If you're, you know, kind of doing one-on-one stuff, you know, you got to yeah. abide by, you know, the schedule that's set. And yes, it's, it's just basic things like that. Right. Well, I'm glad to hear that, you know, while you've had some clients, you haven't followed all of the rules for the most part. It's every business owner has had some, <laughs> let's be honest. <laughs> it's just part of business. Exactly. So do you think there will always be like a continued need that you will keep this business running like until you want to stop teaching? It's always a really big question because you never know with the internet what's going to happen. So I don't know. Like so far, I've been blessed to have enough clients to keep supporting myself. So as long as I can do this, I I will definitely continue. Um, If at some point it becomes less, maybe I will just only do it part-time. I don't know. It's it's really hard considering that the internet changes entirely every couple of years to tell you, yes, of course, in 20 years, I'll still be doing that. I don't know. Maybe at some point I'll be opening a, a language class in the metaverse or something. I never know. Right, yeah. Just see what the internet throws at you and how you can work with it. And has your business model at all changed because of, like the way the internet works since you first started it, even like pre-pandemic? No, not really. Um, I decided to center on what I knew was not going to change too much. So I did a lot of one-on-one because it's what requires the least amount of clients to be able to make a living. That's why you can add the most value. So I'll never have more than seven clients. That's my maximum. So with seven client tops, I can just really give a lot of time to each client and prepare each class and correct the homework and, you know, give a lot of advice. So I I aim for the highest level that I 
can make uh, the highest level of service for the client um, because that's also what will require the least uh, website traffic and the least of like everything you can think of which you don't have control over and also which is not my job and which I kind of suck at to be honest even after studying it for six years it's just it's not what I'm good at I'm just not a good marketer so so I did that and I created my own um, program with workshops and so on um, so that people can also join that without having to do the full one-on-one and that I don't have a limited number of spots for now sometimes I have a limited number of slots per year um, because I can't have too many, but you know, potentially there's unlimited level. Um, and that I don't think will need to change, but you never know what will happen next. So, right. <laughs> but yeah, I try to not depend on social media or things like that because otherwise it's, it, you know, it's a nightmare. Yes. And it's always changing. How long does a client typically study with you? Is there like an average? Uh, I haven't actually made those statistics. It it varies a lot. I I do have people who just like they start with one goal and then they just love it, so they continue for a long time. And then they have it's more typical to have clients who have a particular deadline they will have to have uh, an exam for example or they have a trip um, or something that's coming up and they need to be ready for that time so we work for whatever time it takes you know between now and that time and it can range from and it's rarely less than two months but from two months to a year a year and a half like some people are very prepared some people will contact me being like, oh, I have this thing in one year and a, in a year and a half. Like, I only have 18 months. I'm so stressed out. Like, you know, some people contact me because yesterday they bought a business in a French-speaking country and now they have to communicate with their employees and they have zero French. So you being prepared 18 months ahead of time is wonderful. And don't worry, we will get you there and you will be ready ahead of time. So it, it varies a lot. And so do you have times when people are reaching out and you're like, my client list is full, like I need to work with you at a later time? Or like, how do you handle keeping such like a minimal client list that you're not like, you wouldn't be able to focus on people the way they need? It happened once last year, I think for three or four months, I was full and I had to to create a quote unquote wait list. Uh, But as I told you, I also have my online program. So every one of my one-on-one clients also get access to the online program and they can join the group classes. So whenever I'm full with the one-on-one client list, I tell the new people, okay, just like join the online program. You start working a bit on your own. You won't have as much uh, access to me as if we were one-on-one, but I still have the group classes that are in small groups and you'll be able to talk to me and we can still do a little bit. And then as soon as I have a spot, I will give you priority to that spot. So that's how I've been working with it. It works well so far. Yeah, yeah. It seems like a a good way to streamline people and kind of get people in in a way when, you know, you have to balance your workload. Yeah, and a lot of people don't need my, you know, intense help right here, right now. Mm -hmm. It's not so frequent to have people that are in an extreme emergency. And it never happened to me that I had a person in an extreme emergency and then my client list was also full at the same time. So could could still happen, but yeah, maybe I'll open an eight spot if, if there's someone's like, I need it now. It's very rare, to be honest. Most people are rather planning ahead of time. 
that's good that people are thinking ahead. Yes. I mean, most people are going to schedule a trip or like schedule, you know, going to study in France or joining a charity or, or I have, for example, diplomats, people who work with the United Nations and organizations like that. They plan their careers like almost decades ahead of time. And they're thinking, okay, I would like my next position to be in a French-speaking country, but I don't really have a deadline. I just know that if I were to speak French now, um, it would make everything easier. So how about we start? But it's not like they have to start today as opposed to in three months. And have you ever had a client that it, it hasn't worked out? Like somehow you haven't been able to help them get their goals to what they need? Um. I do have people whose goals change in the meantime. So, of course, then that becomes kind of more difficult. Sometimes you just like their goal of becoming a French speaker kind of vanishes. And then, of course, they don't reach it because, you know, collaboration ends this way. Um, I do have people who are a lot less committed uh, a few months into the process than they were at the beginning. So that makes things pretty challenging because... You need to you need to commit for a certain amount of time to see the results, um, and it's even more tricky because with the way that I work, you see a lot of results at the beginning, because I I try to front load as much as possible, like I give you the best shortcuts at first, and then if you want to iron out all the little things, then it takes longer. Um, but you know I'd rather do it this way because maybe a person will only work with me for two or three months, and I just want them to have the best possible results in that span of time and then i also have people who are just too busy like lawyers and doctors and especially lawyers like i don't know why that's really probably the most profession most busiest profession in the world um doctors are a lot easier i find to work with than lawyers lawyers are like the tops of like they're just too busy and they, they think they can cram the french learning on top of all the stuff they're doing but it's not that easy Right. Yeah. Well, I appreciate everything you have shared so far. Is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners that like, I may not have prompted you with a question, like really the floor is yours. Um, well, thank you. Well, if your listeners are interested in learning French, they can find me on pretty much every uh, social media with at French fluency or on YouTube. They'll find me with my name, Angèle Preto, the French coach. Um, I do have a lot of free content on my channels. I also have a, a free starter kit on my website. It's frenchfrancy.net slash starter kit, one word. And uh, yeah, that's how you can get started for free. And of course, if you would like to you know, take the next step and work with me one-on-one, -on -one, I would be very happy to work with you. I have worked with every gender, including non-binary people, which is really interesting to do because French has only two grammatical genders, masculine and feminine. And it's <laughs> very often non-binary people are very lost in the French class. Um, but I'm very committed to um, providing the safe space to be able to learn it, even if you're non-binary, for obvious reasons. Uh, I think if you listen <laughs> until this point, you get it. So, um, yeah. No, uh, everyone should uh, feel free to contact me at any time and just happy to have a chat or exchange a couple messages. Great. So, yeah. And I'll make sure to leave your website and also the direct link to the starter kit. I think that's a good place for people to find and start, especially if they're interested in learning French and getting more into the things that you've shared about. 
Now, I do ask all of my guests a random question at the end. Sure. So my question for you is, what gets you motivated? Um, predictable results. <laughs> <laughs> I struggle a lot with social media because everything is so random. But if I know that I can do something and the result will be maybe not guaranteed, but very likely to turn up like I expected, it's something that makes me really motivated. So, you know, just like making dinner, for example, is like cooking is something I've never going to have problems with because like, yeah, just like do it. It turns out the way you want. You can share it with your loved ones and then you get to be happy about it. And um, and also for me, when I have a client and their goal is to learn French, I consider that a very predictable result because if they keep showing up, they, they will get their goals. So that definitely keeps me motivated to work with my clients. All right, that brings this episode to a close. As I mentioned, I will be leaving Angel's website in the description, including that link directly to the free starter kit, which also includes some stuff about meditation and learning French through meditation. So feel free to go check that out and learn more. And of course, if you'd like to connect with the podcast, our website is in the description. That brings you to all of our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And it brings you to all of our past episodes with lots of good conversations. So feel free to go check that out. If you would like to be a guest on this podcast, you can feel free to email me. My email is directly in the description. And if you'd like to donate to the podcast monetarily, there is a link to do that as well. So thank you so much, Angel, for spending time with me today. And to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Thank you, Sarah. Bye. Bye.